Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And today, for this episode, we're going to be doing a yearly review, calling out some of the lessons we've learned during hosting this podcast for essentially the first year. This podcast was just launched at the very end of last year, so it's been about a year now. And so we'll be focusing on some of those lessons and then thinking about what's going to be different, what sorts of things we're going to experiment with next year, and just have a general reflection on how these these conversations are going. Yes, the, the first annual reflection. I mean, Kettle, this has been great to be, I know we both had a lot of fun doing this over the last year. So looking back on some of our favorite conversations, some of the key ideas that have come up, things that we've learned, really kind of recapping I guess what we've gotten out of a year of chatting about stoicism, both with each other and with our guests. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This has been, is one of the highlights of working on Stoa as I get to chat with Michael regularly and then <laughs> also chat with guests who are interested in stoicism related topics and learn from them, learn from Michael. And so there's, I think there's, I wrote down a number of things and I expect I won't be able to hit them all in terms of lessons and ideas for for next year yeah let's jump into it cool well let's start with some general lessons or framings i I can kick it off with our episode 23 on stoic psychology and i think that was one of the best explanations of the sort of epictetus's four-step process for thinking about you know, what hap- What does it mean when the Stoics are talking about impressions? What does it assent, this faculty of assent or faculty of judgment? What does that really amount to? And I think if you go back to that episode, understand it deeply, a number of uh, other ideas in Stoicism are unlocked. You know, like what does it mean when the Stoics say to focus on what's under your control? Well, if you have this picture of assent and then you get, you know, you get some sensation, you reflect on it, you bring to bear your past experience, past judgments, and then you decide to agree with it or not. That's that step of assent. And then finally move to impulse, the motivation for action. You know, if you have those those four steps in mind, then you can ensure that, well, what's up to me? It's those last three steps, especially thinking about what I'm bringing to bear when I reflect on an impression and then making that decision to accept or reject an impression. And I think that's that picture highlights, you know, what are you essentially for Epictetus uh, in a way that I think is really useful and probably something I'm going to keep on using as, I think, a useful way to explain some, some of these questions. You know, always instead of thinking about, you know, well, you've got control, you've got things you can influence. You know, the focus is really on, you know, what's going on in your mind fundamentally what are you and thinking about these uh, that your ability to reflect make judgments and so on i think is one of, one of the best ways to that at least i've seen uh to explain explain some of these issues yeah that's great and i, and I love epictetus for that i think he's he's so good at turning the focus onto that and one of the cool things about stoicism is that constant connection between the psychological and the ethical. So you might say, well, what is this four-step process? What does this matter in light of contemporary psychology? Or what do I care about this descriptive 
process, if, if you know, probably it's going to look a little bit different. Well, because it, it has these ethical implications, right? When, when Epictetus says things like, you know, somebody else cannot harm you, that's because he's talking about your, yourself as this, this part of your brain, this part of your mind, your soul, whatever you want to call it, that reflects and that makes judgments and makes decisions about, about or really just the sense to certain impressions is true or not after reflection. And when you think of yourself like that, there's a whole uh, host of ethical implications and, and a lot of the other Stoic claims make a lot more sense. And so I think, I think really clarifying what the Stoics thought in that psychological sense, as you said, four-step process, impression, reflecting on the impression, assenting to it, and then feeling motivation after that, your, your impulse, and recognizing that those last three are the things that are up to you, the things that we need to cultivate, the ultimate goal of Stoicism. When Epictetus says, you know, Stoicism is about making good use of your impressions, what he means is, is perfecting that three-part process. And I, I, think that, I think that's just to say that the, there's clarifying the psychology is important because the psychology is really tightly connected to the ethics. It has a lot of practical implications for how we should live. So I think that's, that's worth doing. And I'm glad that was um, something, something that, that has been really helpful for me. So I'm glad you also got the kind of on a bit of the Epictetus bandwagon, at least in the way that he focuses his, it, that's not a new thing to Epictetus, but he definitely brings the emphasis in that area. Right, right, yeah. And another thing Epictetus is so good at, and of course the other Roman Stoics are keeping mm -hmm. these Stoic principles in mind. And there's always a question, what ones are you going to keep top of mind? Where's that focus going to be? And mm -hmm. for Epictetus, it's always what is your own, what's ultimately up to you, and then thinking about how can you manage impressions well. And I think that you know, moving those up in the... Uh, in their salience or in the making them principles that are closer, more nearby for me has been, has been, uh, has been useful. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. That makes me really happy to hear. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, what do you got? Let's see if we can ping pong some of these. Yeah. We're going to go back and forth. I mean, I think for me, one of the big things that I took out of this, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to start with just a broader reflection on how deep stoicism is. And I know this sounds obvious, but, um, you know, for those that are listening, maybe 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 do or do not know, I have my PhD in philosophy, and I, I focused on Stoicism. So I did eleven years of university in, on philosophy, and seven of those were focused on Stoicism. And I still learned just so much doing this podcast. Right? I, I think if you can't explain something clearly, then you don't understand it. And I think the requirement to have these concise episodes on different topics really pushed my understanding. And that's great for me, but I think the takeaway for people listening is this idea of just like any other craft, the amount of depth there is. I also do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm a black belt in that. And I, I've learned a lot since getting my black belt. And I think it's the same thing here in uh, Stoicism, which is, I don't mean that to sound intimidating, but I mean, there's a kind of a joy of continual improvement. And there really isn't a kind of ceiling you bump up against, especially when you're trying to practice it instead of just trying to memorize it or or recite the stoic principles when you're trying to practice them so i think that i think just that an appreciation for how much depth there is even in stoicism that's not even you know we've we chatted about buddhism um, existentialism contemporary psychology without even breaking into these other areas there's just so much depth here um and that's cool i kind of reignited my passion for stoicism in a way and like uh at least my intellectual passion for for how much there is to understand 
Yeah, I think that's such a great point. You know, reality is astonishingly complex or reality has an incredible amount of detail. And that just seems true and it's especially true, or maybe not especially true, but it's certainly true when it comes to philosophies like Stoicism, thinking about, okay, we have these broad picture ideas, we have these different systems. Uh, now, how do you apply them? How do you think about applying the, these ideas to procrastination? And that requires you know, thinking about some of these concrete details, but also going back to the ancient texts and thinking about you know, how can you think through those in a clear, simple way. And I think that, that brings to mind Musonius Rufus's first lecture in his, his discourses, which is all about making arguments especially simple, clear, taking what's, what's essential from them, putting it in your own words to ensure that you've internalized it and understood it, which is a large part of what, of what you do in these, these conversations. So to some extent, I think listeners are getting the, the results of a, a process that we've uh, all benefited from by having to do that work, clarify our thoughts, decide what we're going to be talking about, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Nice. Well, one other one conversation I enjoyed, a specific one that I want to call out here too, is episode 79, which is on the book Thinking Fast and Slow. And I think so I want I think generally that that's a useful framework. It's a good connection to some ideas in contemporary psychology, behavioral economics, and a useful framing. Uh, but for me, one of my main takeaways from that conversation is that you know, you have this question, how do you manage impressions well? And that thinking fast versus slow framework highlights the issue of when are you sort of training your intuition, your automatic responses, and sort of trusting some of these more, you can almost think of them as almost like more basic processes versus when do you want to deliberate about decisions? When do you want to pause and really take that time to think through in a rational and, and, and calm manner? So, and I think, you know, we gave some heuristics, some ideas about when you can distinguish between those different circumstances, you know, in, in that conversation. So, if, for instance, if you're learning a physical sport or something like that, then in a sense, you're training your intuition. You, you definitely want to step back and deliberate about your training. But when you're in the moment, you're making movements, getting quick feedback, and it's less of a matter of verbal or symbolic thoughts. And of course, there are other fields where you, you just don't have that kind of feedback. You don't have that kind of connection with the environment. And that's where you're going to need to step back and deliberate. And I think it is an interesting question. You know, how do you manage that? When is deliberation useful? When should you realize your intuitions have become totally warped and how do you work, work through that? So I think that's maybe an example of still at the abstract level, but when you get into concrete decisions, like a specific relationship, intuitions about a relationship, or thinking about business decisions, then you can see, okay, we have this general framework for managing impressions well. Now, how do I do that? How do I think about the processes that I have for handling impressions. So that conversation was a good, a good spark for those just general, general questions for me. Yeah. So to, I mean, I, I agree. It's also an interesting conversation for those that haven't listened to it yet, or those, those that have, because as you said, it's grounded in contemporary psychology and there's a lot of similarities there with stoicism, a lot of uh, ways that thinking about stoicism deeply has made, you know, these 
contemporary the contemporary psychology pretty intuitive actually like they're pretty they're both trying to describe the same thing essentially as like this experience of being human and yeah that that question of well i guess the way i was thinking what you were saying Kel, was that you know we we have a process for thinking fast well and we have a process for thinking slow well and you probably want to separate those two things and often when we think about thinking well it's always this thinking slow like what do you do when you're sitting down you have a piece of paper you make a pros and cons list uh you're chatting with your friend about it or you're deliberating but what kind of as you said what kind of processes or systems can you have for thinking fast well and you know i like how epictetus talks about you know even using relying on externals to support this like epictetus says if you're if you're having trouble being angry don't put yourself in the kind of situations that make you angry right if you're having mm-hmm. if you're having trouble with temptation remove the kinds of things that you're tempted towards and so it's not like we just do these it's not like we can think fast well in a in a vacuum from the start it's like sometimes progress means constructing an environment that supports us to do that so if i'm the kind of person that's quick to anger or maybe i don't get into so many debates with people or so many arguments with people i remove myself from those kind of situations when i notice i start to get angry and that's just the give myself whatever step up i can as i try to practice this thinking fast and this kind of i guess these knee-jerk responses to situations yeah 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 i think that's well put the example of uh using externals whether it's thinking about your environment or maybe even reward structuring your habits in a particular way is, is a good one all right what do you got cool Another episode I want to call attention to, well, one that I really enjoyed and learned a lot from was our discussion on voluntary suffering. This is episode 37. Um, I think it's important to make stoicism embodied, especially when you're practicing it. It's important to recognize the relationship between your body and your character. And so voluntary suffering, that's the question of, you know, should I undergo physical hardship to improve my character? Is that necessary? Is it, is it, is it even helpful or is it actively harmful? What, what does the silly example of something like, you know, cold showers? I don't have a silly example. What's the stereotypical example? You know, the, the cold showers have something to teach me about self-control and courage and discipline, or am I just, you know, am I confusing something that's not helpful with, with, as a way to avoid doing the real hard work? And, um, what we came to in that episode was we came to kind of a, kind of a middle ground example, right? This idea of, look. There's a lot that uh, physical hardship can teach you quite a bit. It's not necessary. You can you can improve yourself without physical hardships, and it's it can actually be harmful if you can if you do confuse it with progress. But Masonius Rufus talks about this. Seneca talks about this. People who are used to physical hardship, there's a way that you can train that, use that to your advantage, and they seem to be more inclined to a stoic life probably just because they've learned a couple of lessons about what they do and don't need to be happy already. People who have lived difficult lives. Well, and by difficult, I mean in terms of like physical, be that labor or having to go without external goods, you know, um, mm-hmm. sleep and live in uncomfortable situations. You learn quite a bit about what, it, what you need to be happy and what you don't. And I, I like that. That lesson for me there was just the kind of intelligent middle ground here where you don't want to slip into this asceticism where you kind of fetishize or put physical suffering on a pedestal, but you also don't want to act like the body is irrelevant and the body isn't a way to learn about the world and learn about what it means to to be in the world. 
Um, and so that just that encouragement towards a healthy middle ground uh, was, I think, the right answer. And it was nice to see that the Stoics had landed there and had, had, had thought carefully about it when I think the at least the the non-reflective answer is they get the or the you know the the I don't want to say maybe broicism answer to this is something like you know well, I'm just I I'm a stoic I take cold showers and I um I don't know I sleep on the floor or something <laughs> which people don't tend to do it's mostly just the cold showers so ha- happy to see that middle ground yeah yeah um I think it's also sometimes the traditional stoics and debates with other schools it seems like they are one takeaway from those debates is they make the philosophy seem more almost disembodied. It's more focused just on these rational parts uh, of us and less on the material. It's all about thinking perhaps as a reaction to other schools like the Epicureans who just focus on pleasure and overrate the body. And you can even see some amount of uh, negative attitudes about the body in Marcus Aurelius, you know, it's just a little corpse walking around the, those sorts of lines. But that that picture that, you know, I think, you know, we are embodied minds and we can use that to to our advantage as a as a good one. And that's means we need to ensure that one doesn't make the mistake of valuing one's body, bodily experiences, pleasure, whatever, too highly. Nonetheless, uh it's a, it's a reality one one needs to tend uh, one, one needs to deal with, right? Stoicism is all about embracing reality, things as they are. And we we are embodied beings. We have bodies. That's how we interact with the world. And there's a number of uh, uh, opportunities that op- opens up. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Caleb. Like, like as someone who's an athlete, it makes me uncomfortable when you... I don't say uncomfortable, but just this focus on the rational, the focus on... You know, often in Stoicism, you can feel like it's like a brain in a vat, you know? And the Stoics would, would describe it like that, right? Like you're this, you're a piece of God in a body, but you're not your body. Um, mm. But even though you're not your body, you're still embodied, as you said, and there's still important things to learn about that and, and the, your relationship with your body and pleasure and pain, you know, suffering and um, excess and, and the the pleasure that comes with that as well. There's things to learn about the world from being embodied. We should not remove ourselves from that, even though we keep in mind that, you know, at the end of the day, what matters is that perfecting that character or working on that character more than achieving pleasure at the expense of that character. Right, right. I think this, this point also brings to mind what you mentioned is just there's so much depth to Stoicism. And I think one way to see that is when you're trying to get a grasp on a philosophy, initially you'll take on some of its most controversial aspects or those aspects that differentiate it from others. So now, now we're talking about you know the sort of brain in a vat type idea. You just get impressions, you handle them, send them on their way out. That's it. That's all you got to do. And that is an essential aspect of Stoicism, of course. But once you get into these ideas about um, you know how do you think of managing indifference well, What's the nature of indifference, or perhaps even ideas about, you know, you have a fragment of God in you. What does that mean? You know, how can you make sense of that in the modern sense? So you have these ideas of order, prosociality. Well, it, you know, how is that reflected in the body you happen to have, in the environments you happen to have? And you know, I think those questions open up a whole uh, uh, different ways of uh, interacting 
with the world and sort of continuing pushing on that you know understanding of stoic theory of course but also how you think about making your decisions how you think about things from voluntary suffering to exercise to uh you know interacting mm-hmm. with others yeah and I mean, I want to call out the listeners now. If you're listening to this episode, it's probably not your first episode. Um, if it is, I recommend, you know, going, <laughs> stopping here, going listening to some and then coming back. Um, but people who have been with us for a while, I appreciate coming, you coming on that journey to, to get some of that depth or increase that depth. Uh, I've tried to teach Stoicism in university before. You know, you could drop in and do like a guest lecture on it. And you get basically half the room, you lead with the controversial claims, you said, because you're trying to summarize it. Half the room goes, it almost feels like it bounces off their intuition. Half the room goes, well, that sounds really cool. I want to learn more about that. And then half is like, that sounds really stupid. That is not a good way to live. The Stoics are dumb. Um, how does that make any sense? Um, and it almost feels like it bounces, it just bounces off their intuition. But the, the people, you know, the people that think it's cool, they go and they learn about it more and they get this depth. But the people that don't think it's for them or they don't think it's appealing, I wish there was some way. I, I know there is something appealing in that depth. There is something charitable in that depth, but it's really hard to get to if you bounce off it at the start. You know, this idea, someone would say like, well, I, I, love, my, I love passionate experience, right? Or I love the things I love most about my life or like the sadness I felt with my family or the connections I felt to others. And, and to mm-hmm. say, you know, to offer me a philosophy where I kiss my child on the forehead and remind myself that they're going to die before I go to bed. Like that's gross. And there's that immediate, there's that immediate knee jerk reaction, that immediate rejection. Although I think real stoicism has something more nuanced to say than that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think the, I think the point there is, is, I mean, as you said, there's some nuance there. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful to get to that point. And I think that it would appeal to a lot more people if there was some way to skip that step, I guess, if there was some way to just give it straight as, as it really is, instead of those talking points, instead of those controversial claims, that would be great. But that's not the world we live in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Well, one other lesson I wanted to bring out is we have several episodes on anger and related topics. The central one is why anger is always bad, episode 53. And then we have some later topics on uh, ideas that are connected to anger, like forgiveness, and even one on on punishment. And I have a conversation with with Jeremy Reed on anger and forgiveness as well. Uh, and I think one of the central themes of this year has just been that reminder of one of the ra- Stoics' radical views, which is that anger is always bad. It's a uh, you know that desire that others suffer, um, that desire for vengeance for others, uh, unhappiness is a twisted one. And it's one of these cases where stoicism is, gives a relatively simple uh, target to aim for. You know, as Epictetus says, try go, try go a whole day without experiencing anger, then two days, then three, and so on. And if you can make it to 30, then make a sacrifice to the gods and thanksgiving. And I think that is one of Stoicism's central themes. It's one that essentially has to do with being a social animal. And perhaps it's one that's underrated by a lot of people interested in Stoics. You know, a lot of people come to Stoicism because it's useful in managing anxiety, it helps build resilience. But uh, 
we I mean, we've seen a number of people come to stoicism because of anger issues, but it's certainly lower lower on the list. Um, but if you look at how we interact with others, if you look at a lot of personal problems, then I think you know anger is one of the central issues of of our age, indeed perhaps of all ages. So that's a that's a place that I think was a good theme, good reminder to keep on you know keep to keep the stoic ideas, the principles about anger top of mind. Yeah, that is great. That is a theme we had. We, we, we chatted a lot about anger this year. I, I was thinking about, while well, well, you're talking about what makes anger, I guess, interesting as an emotion or unique as an emotion. I think one thing is that it's, it's rather motivating. So you can create a kind of, you know, this kind of cold-blooded vengeance. It can be a kind of thing that can motivate action long after the precipitating event. And you can kind of construct a life built around anger. I also think it can feel quite good. I think it's probably the most destructive emotion that can feel the most righteous in terms of like an intoxicating, empowering, but also morally correct. Um, You know, this person deserves this. I am enacting cosmic justice or just personal justice upon them. And then I think it's also one of the most nuanced ones in terms of you've I mean, we just talked about kind of shallow stoicism, controversial claims, and deeper stoicism. The if you said you should never be angry, to uh, half of people would agree, and half of people would say that's ridiculous. I should be angry about things that are that deserve anger. And so you you have to kind of get over. You have to go deep, which we did about what deserves anger and what doesn't. But we also you also want to not skip that step, and. Because most people feel angry because they value themselves or others, and they think somebody mm. has harmed themselves or others. And what you don't want to do is not value yourself or others, right? You don't want to say, someone who harms me isn't, isn't it's not a big deal, it doesn't matter. You know, somebody right, right. who uh, insults my friends, well, my friends don't deserve to get stood up for. You don't want to do that. You don't want to make that play where you just become apathetic about the people you care about, or you become, you you... I don't know, you lose your confidence or you lose your self-esteem. Instead, you need to make the play where you really interrogate the cause of anger, which as you said, is the sense that somebody has been harmed and they des- and that somebody deserves punishment for that. Um, and those are the claims you want to interrogate is that some, something's been harmed, something bad has happened and somebody deserves punishment. Not yeah. this claim that um, you, know, you or the people you care about have value and matter because that's one way to get around anger um, is a kind of, I guess, a nihilistic defeatism and you, you we don't want that either right 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 yeah there's if you think of uh anger it's that response that you've been wronged that wrong has resulted in a harm and that harm requires uh, some form of vengeance and it's it's essential to tease apart the idea that you may or may not have been wrong from this idea of harm and you can think that other people have wronged you that requires a response but that's not a response that's done out of anger, right? It's not a response that is infused with the desire for uh, vindictiveness. Uh, well, what else you got? Um, so last last lesson for me this year, um, we had... So the, what I've learned is that I want to think more deeply about a Stoic God. That's pretty much my takeaway. Um, I think we had some sto- uh, some discussions on Stoic religion. Um, and I think calling out my own bias, um, I'm not a religious person. I, I, I've never been a religious person. 
I think I came to Stoicism as a, um, I would say either an atheist or agnostic. I've never really thought too carefully about it. Um, and I, I viewed Stoic, uh, Stoic ethics as being entirely detached from religion. And I think in, in ways it is. I, I think that Stoicism is not a monotheist, or it's, it's, it's not a Judeo-Christian religion. The goddess does not resemble a Christian god. And what attracted me to Stoicism is many ways in which it's different than religion in that it um, encourages questioning and encourages um, counter-argument and debate. Um, I'm sure some aspects of religion or some people who are religious do that, and that's great, but in religion there always seemed to be this component of faith. Um, when you got down to the root of it, there was always faith instead of just an argument, right? Um, and so so I, 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 I understood the Stoic God in theory, but it never made up part of my practice. It never made up a part of my relationship with Stoic ethics, my personal relationship with Stoic ethics. And I think in some of our conversations, the Stoic God came up, um, particular conversation with Chris Fisher um, from Stoicism on Fire stands out to me. And it makes me, it made me question my, basically the, my way of ignoring the Stoic God in my practice and then making me feel that either look, I either need to incorporate this and, and ha really think about what the Stoics mean by God here, because they don't mean what most of us grew up thinking of when we thought of God. They mean something different, although something maybe superior to humans and higher. And, and then either reconcile that into my ethics and my practice and take on some sort of, I guess, spiritual dimension or mm -hmm. figure out how I can comfortably ground it without the need for that, but view it as a maybe a bigger problem to have stoic ethics without without the god than I might have thought before, and that's a still just a floating question for me. But that's um, I mean, what a great thing is like a, the getting getting pushed further in the way that I think about these things. Right. Yeah. That's that's a good topic. It's it's one I we've spoken about doing longer episodes on, and just want to make sure we do it do it properly when we when we have one. I was thinking we'll, we'll jump into this a little bit more, but we've also been thinking about doing shorter episodes. But maybe if we do a discussion on stoic god as the stoic issue of the stoic god, it should be a proper you know, proper three-hour stomper or something like that. <laughs> I, hope got a, I hope you got a long car ride ahead of you. Yeah, it's such, a, it's such a big issue, but, but maybe not. No promises. But but yeah, I think that's a important, certainly an important issue. I think if I think about those issues myself, I don't think they're, I don't think one needs a Stoic God to make sense of Stoic ethics. Uh, I don't think there are any compelling arguments for that idea. Uh, but there still is this question, is there some sense in which you can speak about a Stoic God, even if uh, it's not needed for the ethics? Because of course, maybe there's still a compelling reason to think there is this other dimension to the world, or all this thought of thinking about God, nature with a, a capital N, logos, order, is reflected in, in the way reality is. So. I think that's a, a question that I'm still agnostic about, and certainly one we need, we need to talk about more. Yeah, and and, and um, a lot of this conversation has come back to this idea of depth. You know, I don't expect us to get to the answer of it right away, or at least myself. You seem you seem reasonably confident, which is um, encouraging. But um, just something I want to pay more attention to. I yeah, want yeah, to yeah. change change my focus to include that question as more front and center than as before, where I think my focus was more on that kind of Epictetus psychology aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd say you know I'm, that's I think that's a, a great point, and I'm 
to clarify, I think I'm competent about the questions about ethics and God, but have less confidence about some of those general questions about the Stoic gods to begin with. Well, I also want to say some, give some shout outs for some of these guests' conversations uh, we had. Um, so some of the most useful ones, I'll just think, think of three, uh, so we can ping pong them again, is I had a conversation with Randolph Nessie, and he's a evolutionary psychiatrist, evolutionary psychologist. And I think he has a deep understanding, a uh, powerful grasp on like the nature of emotions, especially when you're thinking about, you know, what are, is the role of emotions in organisms like the ones we are to begin with and some of these fundamental questions about why would we evolve as creatures that experience emotions? What's their role? And then with that understanding, what can we say about the nature of bad emotions, good emotions, so-called? Um, and what purposes do some of these things that feel bad have? His book is titled Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. And that mm -hmm. gives you some sense that these experiences like anxiety and so on, you know, they evolved for a reason or at least in tandem with systems that evolved for a reason. And that's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about, you know, uh, adjusting your, your emotional makeup or reducing anxiety. Perhaps, you know, there's always that question, feelings of anxiety, are they serving towards the experience of uh, anxiety as a full overwhelming emotion or can they be channeled into experiences of caution, you know, a, a cool caution that promotes prudence. Um, and I think that that conversation help, can help set, set up, I, or at least I hope, and at least Nessie's work in general is certainly useful for thinking about the nature of emotion and wading through some of those questions. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it makes me think of, you know, there's this tendency to, oh, bear with me through this clumsy metaphor, but I'm imagining almost a sort of radar system that you've programmed to pick up something. So maybe the radar system picks up if something flies overhead. And so the, the, that, that radar picking it up, that's the anxiety. You've programmed your core beliefs are the programming. So, you know, if someone judges me or thinks I'm silly, then I should be anxious about that. And then I think what, you, what can happen if you are averse to the negative feeling of being anxious is you can kind of turn off the radar system. You can ignore the signal. And that is like a, I think kind of a harmful experience because it numbs, your, numbs you to your emotions. And it also, as you said, like doesn't, doesn't give you access to the good reasons for bad feelings, which is that you want this radar system to warn you, to help you navigate the world, right? And what the Stoic asks instead is for us to reprogram what pops up on the screen, you know, it asks us to reprogram what is in our radar. So maybe not, you know, the the mockery of others, maybe that doesn't pop up and, and cause anxiety, or maybe it causes, it, it pops up something else, right? A, kind of a gentle caution or something like this. But it asks us to reprogram the machine rather than to ignore the machine, I would say. At least that's the way that I think about it. And I think that that's uh, a really helpful question to ask rather than this kind of numbing of, well, because a lot of people come to stoicism for that reason is I don't like to feel bad. How can I not feel bad? Right, well, right. don't feel anything about anything that doesn't have to do with what's in your control. 
okay, thanks, stoicism. And then that's, but that's not really, uh, that's not really a healthy answer, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice. Who do you, uh, who do you want to mention? I mean, connecting to the same theme, I had a great conversation with Julia Galef, um on the scout mindset. And I think one thing that you hit in your conversation with Nessie was this idea of evolutionary reasons uh, for bad feelings. And the conversation with Julia Galef was about two different ways of thinking, what she called the soldier mindset and the scout mindset. The scout mindset, I think, is roughly a stoic one as you try to understand the world as it is. And the soldier mindset is about attempting to, I guess, create the worldview that is the most motivating for your goal, right? So if you want to, you know, if if you want to win the Olympics, the soldier mindset is to say, well, I'm the best there ever was. Nobody can stop me. Nobody can defeat me. And that you, the, the view there is that, well, that's kind of motivating you. It's pumping you up. It's stopping you from feeling anxiety like we just talked about and the scout mindset is to say well you know if i if i do my best i probably have a shot to come top eighth uh as long as you know i don't get injured beforehand it's kind of an accurate assessment and there's obviously these the what i like to what i like about this is is this clear recognition that people are not stoics for a reason right at least what they think is a good reason they're not stoics and when I say not stoics, I mean this idea of why don't you live in accordance with nature? Why don't why doesn't everybody just try to see the world the way it really is? Mm-hmm. And the answer is that because uh, they think it's it's better not to. They think it, there's benefits to seeing the world maybe with rose-colored glasses, maybe seeing the world with a bit of overconfidence, maybe seeing a world where you don't set yourself up for disappointment because you don't entertain the fact that maybe you could try this thing, you could make this change. Um, people have a lot of, there's a lot of protective mechanisms that go into the soldier mindset. Um, and I think a, there's some sympathy when you understand why you're not living in accordance with nature and it can help you understand why you fail to do that, to have a scout mindset sometimes. And then B, um, Julia just makes a lot of arguments for why, you know, that that's all legitimate, but at the end of the day, the soldier mindset is just a lot less effective than most people think it to be. It doesn't achieve the goals you think it achieves. And at the end of the day, right, going back to that, you know, win the Olympics example, if you want to win the Olympics, the scout mindset is a lot more helpful than the soldier mindset. So the soldier mindset doesn't achieve the goal you want it to, or you claim that it will. So A, I think an interesting, an interesting argument, but B, I think importantly calling out, as I said before, the fact that people people have reasons for not living in accordance with nature or not seeing things the way they are. And you have to kind of acknowledge those reasons, uh, I guess, ultimately to counter them or to move past them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a good point. I think you also have the sort of, um, you know, what's the, sometimes people talk, talk about the proximate cause for people holding their beliefs uh, and, and others might talk about you know, what's the distal cause, which are basically fancy words for, you know, what's the immediate cause versus what's that larger term structural cause for a given thing. And Julia Galef is good at pointing out, you know, a lot of people, they have the immediate cause for them having this soldier mindset is just what you say, this judgment that it's a good thing for them. But we can also think about ourselves as, you know, these evolved beings who have reasoning faculties that aren't perfect. And 
maybe in certain situations, the kind of so person who has that soldier mindset is going to be more evolutionarily fit or whatever, or there are certain kinds of cognitive biases are going to be favored. And having that, that perspective, that larger perspective about how might our reasoning systems tend to be completely messed up because of our social background, or in this case, our deeper biological evolutionary background is uh, always a useful, useful frame. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, one other person I wanted to shout out was my conversations with Chris Gill. We've spoken with Chris Gill before. He's excellent, really one of the <clears throat> best modern Stoic academics. I'd say he's captured Stoicism both in a accurate way. He's done excellent work tracing you know, what did ancient Stoicism look like, but also explaining it in a defensible version that works for or is understandable, is comprehensible for many modern philosophers and listeners as well. So we have a conversation, I think that was episode 78, on some of the key concepts of Stoic ethics, especially you know, these questions about indifference, what grounds virtue and how to think about the connections between the virtues and, and nature. So, uh, you know, always, always an honor to get to speak with Professor Gill. Any key takeaways from that one? Well, I think his discussion of, in his book, Learning to Live Naturally, which is an academic book, but if you like academic philosophy books, I'd recommend it. But otherwise, I'd wait for, he's working on a introduction to Stoic ethics that should be out hopefully next year. I'd wait for that. If you don't want to wade through learning to live naturally, which is also unfortunately somewhat expensive if you went through an academic publisher. But at any rate, in learning to live naturally, you've got a really nice argument for why Stoic ethics is philosophically superior to Aristotelian virtue ethics. And Aristotelian virtue ethics is the, generally the modern form of virtue ethics in, in, in philosophy. When people think about uh, virtue ethics, they usually think about it from the Aristotelian mindset, uh, which doesn't have to do with thinking about indifference, preferred indifference, virtue, which are some of the central ideas for Stoicism. But And one argument for thinking Stoicism makes more sense than virtue ethics, in addition to the ideas about virtue always being a benefit, no indifference ever always being, uh, no indifference have that property. They're never always a benefit. Sometimes pleasure is good, sometimes it's bad, it depends on the circumstances. But the reason you need preferred indifference is to ground you know, what makes a given choice virtuous or not. And indifference are the materials of virtue. You're selecting between different indifference, essentially, when you're making a decision. Uh, do I decide to work at this career or another? You're selecting between wealth, or the actual social meaning of those careers, and so on. And what can make one decision better or not is essentially the balance of preferred indifference. You know, how does this impact the community? Does this make enough money for me to support my family? And so on. And that idea of uh, some indifference being preferred, others being dispreferred, others being neutral is, I think, an idea a lot of people have had a hard time making sense of in Stoicism. Because uh, it seems somewhat odd, you know, like these things are preferred, but they're not ultimately good in some sense. Uh, you know, how, how does that work? When it, well, if you can think about them as being the materials of virtue, being the sort of thing you're always selecting between, and their status as preferred or dispreferred 
as sort of really deciding, you know, what makes an, a given choice the one that a virtuous person would take, I think, is a useful, useful frame. And it's something that Aristotelian ethics doesn't, doesn't have. Uh, uh, so to, to that extent, you can think of it almost as, as an argument for Stoicism, almost like a sketching out. There, there could have been an alternative history where more virtue ethicists were having to have a Stoic frame instead of an Aristotelian one, which is an interesting thought. Yeah, well, that, that, that idea of the nuance of indifference, right? Like, <laughs> we need a better English word is what we need because we don't, we don't need to have that word. But this idea that sometimes indifference make the difference, I guess. Um, <laughs> and, and, and how, you know, our navigation of them plays into what, you know, whether or not we're ex exercising ver our virtues effectively or whether or not we're being, we're making the right kind of choice or the choice a good person would make and figuring out how to how to juggle those that's something i'm still i still wrestle with i think we did we talked a lot this year about uh role ethics as well as a way to help ground that mm -hmm. that's not something we've hit on yet this episode but we'll, we talked a lot about role ethics too um and so yeah so it's, it's an interesting question especially in this podcast where we we're, you know, we want the theory to be as accurate as possible but we always want it to be grounded in the practical and the practical at the end of the day is going to come down to selecting between indifference right um so yeah, cool, cool argument. I, I love that direct engagement with, with Aristotle too. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last one for me that I'll call out. Um, I had a conversation a couple months ago with uh, Greg Sadler. Um, and that was on criticisms to Stoicism over history, basically over the course from ancient Greek philosophy up until um, a couple hundred years ago. And what I really enjoyed about that conversation, other than, you know, it's, it, it, I, I think that criticism is such a fun way to engage in philosophy because when I started philosophy, the reason I fell in, in love with philosophy in university was it was the first, the first time I can remember somebody raised their hand in class and said to the professor, like, I think, you know, I think utilitarianism is dumb or I think Kant's wrong. Like, uh, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and the professor got excited. You know, the press was like, that's great. Tell me more. And I always thought philosophy was the space that welcomes criticism. And criticism is a really good way of refining your own positions. I mean, it's kind of a skeptic argument, right? If you, if you want to see if you understand stoicism, try to make the strongest possible criticism against it and then try to defend it as a stoic, right? And so I, I love criticisms of stoicism. I think they are ways that really help flesh out the, the messy parts of stoicism you don't often look at. So that's just a lot of fun. And then the other thing I liked about that episode was that reminds me that, you know, the Stoics didn't exist in a vacuum. And then they, they, they thought their things. Then there was 2000 years of Christianity. And now here there is us on a podcast. It, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. There was um, debate, conversation there, there, the Stoics, existed in more or less prominence, but they always existed in philosophical thought and philosophical history, resting around, bouncing against others. And that kind of relationship is, is, is both just an interesting one if you're into Stoicism, but also helpful to clarify your understanding of Stoicism. Yeah, yeah. I think looking at how other thinkers interacted with Stoicism outside of the Greco-Roman context is yeah. uh, always, always interesting. I've been reading some John Stuart Mill lately. He's very familiar with the Stoics. Of course, you have several American founding fathers who have read Epictetus. And I think that's, uh, and then in your conversation with Greg Sadler, you cover some of 
the German philosophers mm-hmm. and how they how they used Stoicism, uh, interacted with the Stoics, rejected it, took some ideas from Stoicism. Um, I think both both Hegel and Nietzsche admire the Stoics in some respects, but also thought of them as inferior in some respects. So uh, I think that's always interesting. One last person I do want to shout out is Dana Joya. So that was conversation 74, or episode number 74. And Dana Joya has a background as a, uh, uh, he's a director of marketing for uh, Jello, essentially. And then he just wanted to be a poet. He says he went to Stanford Business School at the express idea of becoming a poet. And I visited him in person. We have some video of the events. He did a recent translation of The Madness of Hercules. And that conversation itself is very interesting, but I think I, one of my favorite parts of that uh, experience was being able to meet with someone who has an exceptional amount of crystallized intelligence. He just knows so much more liter- literature and poetry than I do. I feel like such a Philistine. Uh, when talking to <laughs> when talking to Jaina, even movies as a history of movies was always very good. But he's also hum- relative. You know, he's humble. He is a complete pleasure to talk to, and was an was an excellent host. So I think, in some ways, that it, the non philosophical elements of that conversation, that meeting which perhaps in some sense are the real philosophical elements where it really stood out, stood out to me. You know, meeting Dana was a, was a real pleasure. I felt lucky to do so. Maybe one way of framing that is, you know, that wasn't really, what I was thinking from that was there, there wasn't so much a takeaway so much as there's, I mean, you wouldn't want to call it contemplation of a sage, but you, or maybe you would, but there's something to say for meeting a person that says and saying, well, this person has qualities that I admire and this person has uh things I want to aspire towards. Uh, for me, I really look up to that ability to mix kind of business and art, you know, that ability to be well-read, knowledgeable about the humanities, but also pr- practically successful in the world of business. That kind of combination, I think, is something that's difficult in, in terms of at least being uncommon. And so I think, you know, seeing something, somebody who's able to, to balance that is, is pretty I don't know, motiv- motivating at least and, and inspiring at best. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Dana Joya has a, a conversation with Tyler Cowen. So if you're interested in learning more about him and I've sort of seen him at, at his best, I think that's a, though there's no stoicism, unfortunately. Um, in that conversation, it's a, a good example of, you know, listening to someone who's thought a lot about poetry, has firm views on a number of esoteric matters in art and literature that I think can, like rekindle the one's interest in those things. So I'll give a Tyler Cowan a free shout out as well. But um, as we're wrapping this up, we thought we should talk a little bit more about how we're thinking about this conversation, uh, this these Stoic conversations for next year. If you've listened this far, you know perhaps you have some thoughts yourself. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be making a little survey. I'll put it on StoicMeditation.com/slash/survey. Uh, I haven't created it yet, but it'll be there by the time this podcast comes out. You know, we like to build the plane as it flies here, uh, as they say. Um, but I think I think that's a good idea. If you're listening this far, you almost certainly have some good ideas, thoughts that we'd be interested in hearing. But um, you know, what 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 are you thinking for next year, Michael? 
Um, so something we already hit on, I want to learn more about the Stoic God. I think that's a big part of Stoicism that I'd love to have as to have some conversations on um, in this podcast. Um, I want to learn a bit more about history. That's another thing too. I think coming from a philosophy background, that's a bit of a weakness of mine. And so I would love to learn a bit more about Greco-Roman history and build that into our conversations. I also want to continue our habit of having conversations with non-Stoics who could offer a paradigm shift, something like uh, religious thinkers, maybe Eastern philosophies, including Buddhism, but also extending outside of Buddhism. Uh, those are three things that I think will kind of round out um, and round out my knowledge, which is ultimately you know, part of this is part of this is is giving part of this is us having these conversations because we think it's helpful to other people. But I think the conversations are always uh, best when they're motivated by personal interest, right? And th those are the things that I think personally interest me the most, and we kind of round out my understanding of uh, stoicism and my practice. So, so that's, that's it content-wise. Um, another thing, I mean, you mentioned the survey, but I would love to connect with listeners more. We've been lucky to have uh, a couple of our episodes were based on specific listener requests. We're very responsive and receptive to emails. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm really, we're going get to get it in the survey, but as we go, you know, provide your feedback. Hey, that was a good conversation. Do more of that. Or hey, why don't you guys talk about this? We're pretty responsive to that stuff. And that's something that I would love to, do more of is, you know, as we go tailor the content to what's most helpful to people and most interesting to people. Yeah, it's always good to hear people when they reach out to us directly or even pick up on discussions on Reddit, different Discord channels or, or Facebook. So it's good to see see those as well. But I, I would emphasize or reemphasize that suggestion to get in touch. We always appreciate when people do that. Um, I think doing something on doing some more episodes on the Stoic God makes a lot of sense to me. Learning about, you know, going over some of these biographies, giving people a sense of role models uh, could be interesting. I always love the history stuff. So, uh, yeah, we should definitely, definitely do that. And I think I also, I think I'd like to hear, have more conversation in terms of guests, you know, bring on people who are practicing Stoics who don't have that explicit background in philosophy and may not even call themselves stoics but have enough overlap uh, that it would be fun, fun to talk to them and learn how they think about life how they think about some of these questions of theory and practice is something I'd, I'd like to do more as well yeah one thing i was just thinking caleb i would love to do i mean i, I agree with all that but i would love to do also i really enjoyed our conversation on gladiator and uh, I think we should do some more discussions of art. One, one thing that I put here was like, I, I want to have some more practical conversations, but I think something that can ground practical conversations is always examples. And I think movies, books, maybe pop culture, these things, they, they, they can serve as um, catalysts for conversations or these case studies that ground um, the, 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 the philosophy behind them. So interested in some more, maybe some more movie reviews. Maybe see that coming when Gladiator Two comes out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I I think our conversation on Gladiator was awesome. So we should definitely do some more of this. I think there's, you know, you've mentioned um, that Guy Ritchie film before Revolver. I still haven't yep. seen that. I think that'd be a good one to do. There's all these, you know, sword and sandal type movies that might be fun. Going going over three hundred or 
uh, Troy. Ooh, three hundred uh, is a good one. Or or new 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 ones like that, yeah. So, I think uh, I think that that'd be fun as well. Maybe maybe, and I was also thinking maybe we will experiment with some shorter episodes doing the book reviews. Another episode I liked that we did this year was our review of the lives of the Stoics, and I think that that hits on some of these ideas of biographies, thinking about role models, and also going through you know what if other modern Stoics said how they how they interacted with with the ancient Stoics, what they taken from them. Uh, is cool, great. Looking forward nice. to it. Yeah, that's going to be a great year. Um, you know, fate willing. Do get in touch with us, listeners, if you want to help shape that at all. Otherwise, uh, until next time.